I should announce that the uh, missing dongle is on the way. My wife is uh, zooming across town from her office right now with a three-inch thing, which will make Paul's uh, computer connect to the universe and to us. He has fabulous graphics for us tonight, and that's why we're running around in circles uh, trying to make sure that we got uh, him connected up. Uh, many of you are familiar with this drill. There are cards. I hope you have them. Uh, that's how we do question and answer. And it's nice if you put your name at the top, because we'll say that when we ask a question. Uh, you can fill these out any time during the talk or during Q&A. Uh, send them to people in the yellow helmets that are walking up and down with the questions box. And they'll come up to me and Kevin Kelly, and we'll pick out the most brilliant ones and, uh, and nail Paul with them. Uh, neatness counts. Brevity counts. Pith is the main event. The other thing you'll see on this card is announcement of several of the uh, forthcoming talks. Uh, next month, we usually do these second Fridays. Uh, next month, it's November 12th. And uh, that one will be Michael West talking about the prospects of human life extension. He's one of the leading scientists in that area and uh, knows it cold. The month following that, not the second Friday, but uh, the first Friday, December 3rd, is Ken Dykewald talking about following on Michael West's talk with uh, the potential consequences of human life extension, which will, by the way, connect back to the talk we had two months ago on the depopulation problem, which is now approaching and the aging of everybody. Uh, if you think it's weird enough fighting about Social Security when you're my age in your 60s, imagine what it's going to be like fighting for it when you're in your 140s. <laughs> Paul's an old friend, an old colleague. His office is about three feet from mine in Sausalito, and he's lived in the houseboats there with us for a long time. And we got noticing as we were putting together this series, which we're now in the 12th one of, we've done a full year of seminars about long-term thinking. And a good way to, yeah, congratulations, everybody. And a lot of you have been here for most of that, starting with Brian Eno a year ago in November. It's appropriate to come around to the environmental domain because that's really, in the 20th century, what has taught the world, taught civilization about thinking long-term. Environmental scientists, environmental activists, uh, governments were slow to respond in this area, and the NGOs basically rose to the occasion on a global scale. And so the environment has really brought the long-term thinking to uh, how we do society now. But what we've asked Paul to do is sort of reverse that and take long-term thinking and look with it at the environmental movement, at everything that we've learned in the 20th century, and in the period before that, in context of seeing uh, where we're going next in this century with the environmental movement on a global scale. So please welcome Mr. Green, Paul Hawken. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Can you hear me in the back? Yes? Uh, first of all, thank you, Stuart, and thank you, everybody from the Long Now, for inviting me. Um, the, a couple things. Um, 
This is not a speech that I've given before, so I've got lots of notes. Um, so I would ask you, if you would, to work with me a little bit, and I'm, I want to think with you, and so you can definitely nail me with your questions, but uh, before the questions come, I just want you to know that in a sense, I'm working some of this out with you tonight, and the invitation was an Im invitation to do exactly that. One of the invitations was to make it very visual, which I normally don't do. The irony of that is that I grew up uh, as a photographer uh, in a family of artists. I can really only think visually, and writing is actually kind of a painful process because I only see ideas, and then I have to figure out how can I express them in words. And so, and what's happened is that I've become a, a wordy and I haven't done visual presentations for a long time, and so here I am without a dongle doing my visual speech uh, without the visuals. But anyway, the good news is the first part of the speech, uh, we can bag some of the visuals, and they, if we get the thing soon, uh, n n not much will be lost. Uh, when I started thinking about this speech, I, I, I couldn't help but think about end time. I'm talking about the long now, but in fact, the end time is much, much with us. Uh, the two uh, Abrahamic religions, uh, Christianity and Islam, uh, both uh, have um, end time scenarios. And of course, uh, we're familiar, many of you are, with uh, Hinduism and the Kali Yuga, which is a uh, stage we're in. Now, in Hinduism, time is cyclical. Um, but in the Kali Yuga, uh, it is sort of like a, a spiral or an ice skater bringing in uh, his or her hands and time becomes more compressed. I have to say, of all the descriptions of end time, the Hindus get the uh, prophetic nod, uh, no question about it. The earmarks and signs of the Kali Yuga uh, in no particular order are uh, food will become tasteless, check. Uh, uh, crows and ravens will increase in numbers, which was true until West Nile virus, uh, which is now attacking them. Uh, girls will have babies at 10 years old, check. Uh, old men will be prematurely youthful. <laughs> Viagra, right? Viagra, right? Check. Okay. Judge and politicians will favor the wealthy. And I thought that was a kind of a ringer. Like, when haven't they? You know, so I didn't think. Audacity of speech will be the only criterion of veracity. Now, who might that be? You know. Virtuous deeds will be performed only with the object of gaining fame. People will be oppressed by heavy taxation. People will perish through drought, unusual cold, scorching heat, heavy rain, and mutual conflict. Uh, in Islamic and Christian eschatology, though, end time is signaled by a series of portents which are actually broadly familiar and almost like an isomorph of the other. The Christians have a knack for more elaborate scenarios, as witnessed by the book The Late Great Planet Earth, which is one of the best-selling books of all time, uh, 35 million copies. And, of course, there is the uh, Left Behind series, uh, which is also phenomenal in its popularity. But for the Islamics, and this is really pertinent right now, there is a belief that the Dajjal, the Dajjal, uh, the false messiah, or the Antichrist, will blaspheme Jerusalem and read Ariel Sharon. Right? And the Mahdi, uh, who is the new prophet, uh, that will lead them to a messianic age, uh, is here. In many of the poor areas of the Middle East, you know, as I said, uh, Ariel Sharon is the bogeyman, but the Mahdi, or the Messiah, is either Osama bin Laden or Mullah Omar of the Taliban. Right? 
And for John Ashcroft and George Bush, of course, it's completely the opposite. The Antichrist, in their way of thinking, is actually about and alive in, of all places, where he was predicted to be, the Middle East. And the Islamic Messiah is, in fact, in Christianity, the Antichrist, Osama bin Laden. And according to a, a revelation interpretations, the Antichrist forms an army, Al-Qaeda, but so does Jesus. And Jesus appears in the clouds to take believers up to meet him like a reception, maybe, thus escaping the terrible, overwhelmingly destructive Donald Rumsfeld war that will soon come. Non-born-agains, of course, are not invited. We are the left behinds, most of us here, unless I made a mistake. The point is that the, the world's two biggest religions have significant numbers of believers that see this as the end time, or at least at the end of a significant era. And several of them are in the White House and in our cabinet. So what does this have to do with the long... Uh, thank you, Danny. Thank you so much. This is so nice. Oh, no. I don't want to see that yet. Thank you. <laughs> Okay. Um, and the Green Movement, to me, are the stay-behinds. These are the people who don't want to leave. In fact, they want to stay here and fix it up. And they're not at all happy with the current tenants, the upkeep, the behavior, or the landlord. There's a deep sense of continuity with place, with rivers, with mountains, animals, you know, coral reefs, you know. And somehow, in some way, the Greens have come to integrate timelines into their love of self and into their love of life. Uh, Janine Benyus, the author of Biomimicry, uh, whom I highly recommend for this series, <clears throat> talks about offspring, and all species have offspring, and they do everything they can, in a sense, to do what? To ensure the survival of their offspring. But they also ensure the survival of their offsprings, offsprings, offspring. Well, how do you ensure the survival of offspring that you will never see. Well, you do that by paying attention to habitat. The only way you can ensure survival of offspring you will not see is by taking care of your place. Now, this speech, the long green, was suggested by, the title was suggested by Stuart. And in a flash, he also gave me the praise of speech. And he said, quote, as he said in his introduction, if a connection between the long now and the earth has been made, it is partially due to environmentalism uh, or the environmental movement. This would be due to the fact that uh, it is at heart, uh, on one hand, a science-based movement, and that science has long uh, lead and lag times that require the measuring and understanding uh, of change over long cycles. Uh, it uses uh, bristle cone, uh, pine cones, uh, uh, ice core samples, dendrochronology, of course, ancient lake beds, uh, pollen samples in amber, uh, the longitudinal data set created by the uh, Mauna Loa Observatory on CO2, which has become critical uh, to our understanding of uh, climate change. Another way to put it is that the many environmental sciences, and they really are many, limnology, which is, of course, lakes, and, you know, agrostology, grasses, bionomics, silvics, ornithology, paleobotany, climatology, evolutionary biology, synecology, marine biology, etc., etc., etc. But almost all these really require uh, long views in order for them to be effective. 
Now, the movement itself, of course, for it to be effective, any movement to be effective has to, in a sense, specialize. Uh, it has to, uh, ha- to rise above the sea of noise in the culture. And the environmental did it with mostly, you know, charismatic uh, vertebrates. You know, dolphins, whales, panda bears uh, have all served the movement well, but aller-coated apples and clear cuts and other things have also helped. But the problem with specialization, as we know, is it forfends against integration and connectivity. Okay. And um, so the environmental movement uh, really is, has been in some ways historically cut off from other movements that actually take a long view, such as historical preservation movement, uh, archaeology, and other time-based disciplines. You know? And the example of that is that the local chapter of the Sierra Club for a while opposed the, the um, uh, Long Now Clock Library uh, in the Snake Mountains in Nevada. Now, when we look at the long green, try to think forward, if we can, which is becoming more and more difficult given climate, uh, climate science. But we have to also figure out, well, what are the roots of it? Where did it start? Where did it originate? And the different environmental timelines or ecological um, uh, histories and so forth all vary. Uh, but there's certain, I think, elements that we can, excuse me, uh, look at uh, and as the origins, if you will, of this movement. Now, I've started with uh, uh, actually uh, George Marsh, but this is the guy I really want to show, because I think it was Emerson's essay, uh, 1836, on nature, that you would have to go back to, at least in this continent, you know, and say, okay, that was a, a seminal point in terms of our thinking and our relationship to self and nature. Um, it really provided the philosoph- philosophical underpinnings of transcendentalism, there's no question about that. Uh, quote, who looks upon a river in a meditative hour and is not reminded of the flux in all things. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or particle of God, of course, which is a very Whitman-esque statement. You think of leaves of grass, right? But this was actually pretty controversial stuff at the time. I mean, very controversial. Uh, It took six years, by the way, for Emerson to sell his self-published book. (laughs) 500 copies he sold in six years. So for those who are self-published and struggling, relax. Um, But the fact is that in, uh, two years later, he gave a talk that was based on that book at Harvard University, uh, and it was almost scandalous, because in a sense, what he said as an ex-Unitarian minister who struck out as a pamphleteer and a writer is that he really questioned the mediating role of church in the Trinity and replaced the church with nature and said nature was the mediator for one to, for one to understand oneself and spirit, uh, and it caused a, a furor. Uh, and and, and, and the, the church was really pissed off, uh, actually. Um, and again, to quote from nature, the stars awaken a certain reverence because though always present, they are inaccessible. But all natural objects make a kindred impression when the mind is open to their influence. Nature never wears a mean appearance. Neither does the wisest man extort her secret and lose his curiosity by finding out all her perfection. Uh, nature never became a toy to the wise spirit. Now, it was really uh, George Perkins Marsh, though, who is commonly called the first environmentalist. He was a state senator from uh, Vermont, a congressman, excuse me. And he delivered a very seminal lecture in 1847 on deforestation, which became the basis for his book, Man and Nature. It was published in 1864. It was a very prescient book, no question about it. It was also, in my opinion, way off the mark. Uh, On the good side, he was the first to describe the interdependence of the environment 
uh, and society. And it seems elementary to us, but at the time uh, that was not the case. But there is a very distinct and clear uh, 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 subtext there that it is man, and I'm using it gender specifically here, over nature. I mean, so uh, there uh, was no bones about that. And this schism continues to this day in many of, I think, the larger, what I call megafauna environmental organizations that are primarily rooted on the East Coast. I mean, there's a real difference between those on the East and the West. And there's Martian organizations and there's Emersonian, you know. Emersonian ones, you might say, are Friends of the Earth, Sierra Club, Earth Island, Ecofeminism, Deep Ecology, uh, to be sure, and groups who do not see primacy to corporations or other human institutions in terms of the sanctity uh, of the environment. Uh, Martian organizations, I would say, are NRDC, Nature Conservancy, Environmental Defense, Conservation International, World Wildlife. You know, uh, those are just my categories. Uh, Martian organizations tend to be better financed. Uh, they are not threatening to the establishment and bring them in wholeheartedly on their boards as, as funders. So they generally have a lot more money. They're generally white. They're generally more conservative. They tend to be hunters uh, as a group. Emersonian organizations are much more numerous. They're smaller. They're lighter of foot. Uh, they're poorly endowed as a rule. <laughs> they're faster acting. They're more radical. They're collectors. They're writers. Uh, they're preservers. They're a lot more uh, scientists in that in, uh, who are activists as opposed to researchers. But, bef but you need to go back before Emerson and Marsh and you have to cite others. You've got to think about Ruskin in the 1820s who really called to question the industrial age uh, and the enormous suffering occasioned uh, upon poor people in London and other cities. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Fourier uh, in 1824 was the one who first put forth the theory that in fact the atmosphere trapped heat. Sunshine. So, in a sense, global climate theory uh, started in 1824. Uh, although the Luddites are used as a term of opprobrium and ridicule, the movement is actually was a, a really brilliant underground uh, guerrilla movement. It was really, really well thought out. And you see some of the exact same techniques today in uh, a group such as the Ruckus Society that were used by the Luddites. You know. So, again, when you look at what we have today, you can trace the roots back uh, to, in this case, John Ludd um, in, um, in the 1830s. And then there's Audubon, okay? uh, John James Audubon. Now, he was a mulatto. He came here. Uh, he was an acclaimed artist, but he came here to really dodge the draft. Uh, he came from Haiti, uh, and uh, he didn't want to go to war. But in a sense, Audubon was the discovery channel of his day. He was a National Geographic channel. Uh, his first edition of Birds of America was published with 435, and you, most of you have seen these folio, but they were almost life-size prints of, of uh, avifauna, uh, was published in 1926 and then sent here. It was published in Scotland. It became a huge, huge success in the United States. And his was not the first attempt to paint all the... Uh, uh, avian life uh, in North America, Ella Alexander Wilson was the first, but his work eclipsed all others before and so I would say since, you know. And 1851, Thoreau delivers a lecture to the Concord Lyceum in which he says, in wilderness is the preservation of the world. At the same time, and now we see a shift in terms of the environmental movement, California becomes really important. And, and, and what happened at the same time, and Thoreau was giving that lecture at the Lyceum, there was a kind of an entrepreneur out here uh, named uh, Gale, uh, James Gale, George Gale, excuse me, who had a kind of a carnival show and, you know, kind of tawdry sort of uh, entrepreneur type. 
Uh, and he had heard that there, in the Calaveras Grove, because the gold miners had gone up there, that there was a tree called the Mother of the Forest. And this was the most magnificent redwood tree that was standing in what is now Yosemite. Uh, it was 300 feet tall. It was 92 feet in diameter. Uh, and he decided, uh, with nobody's permission, uh, even though he didn't own a sawmill or he wasn't a lumberjack, uh, that he was going to cut it down and use it uh, for his vaudeville show and so forth and carnivals back east. So uh, he got all these men. They cut through it. They cut through it again. They cut all the way through the tree. The tree wouldn't fall. They made big battering rams, you know, and the tree wouldn't fall. They put in wedges all on one side. The tree wouldn't fall. It was so huge. It was so straight. It was so symmetrical. The weight was so perfectly centered. They couldn't knock the tree over. 25 days later, a big true gale, a windstorm came up and blew the tree down. Uh, when it was blown down, People in the middle of the night in mining camps 15 miles away were awoken by the noise. You know, that was some tree. The tree was 2,520 years old. A nearby tree, which had died earlier, naturally, was called the father of the forest. It was 450 feet long, 45 stories. Right? Um, the mother of the forest contained so much water that the uh, needles of the tree uh, didn't turn brown for five years. It was alive even though there was no roots at all. But the cutting of the tree created this huge outcry on the East Coast. Horace Greeley at the New York Tribune said it was a villainous speculation and vandalism of the highest order. Uh, in Boston, a magazine wrote, uh, writer wrote, to our mind, this was perfect desecration. What in the world could have possessed any mortal to embark on such speculation with this mountain of wood? And what he, do, what he did is he stripped the bark off a section about this high, took three cross cuts to show the age of the tree, and then left the rest of the tree there. When he put together this 92-foot uh, circumference bark, you know, uh, ghost of the tree, people who saw it didn't believe it, and he actually went out of business. All right. So, so much for George Gale. Uh, 1854, Life in the Woods, Walden. Okay. 58, Frederick Law Olmsted, Calvert Vaux. Okay. They, win the con they win the competition to do Central Park in New York City. And what you have here, of course, is called the Green Sword at that time. But still, what you have now is nature within humanity. That is, it's the walled garden. It's the idea that that we contain nature, very a powerful uh, concept that infused landscape architecture at that time, gardening as well, but also uh, our thinking. Uh, in 1860, though, I think Thoreau gave his most important lecture and most important statement, and this was um, uh, a talk called The Succession of Forest Trees, uh, and it was given to the Middlesex Agricultural Society, and it's not my phone, thank you. And, but, but this is for the first time somebody presented the idea of ecological succession in the forest. Something we seem children study that now, right? And understand it. Now, in that speech, he said, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. To me, equally mysterious origin for it. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. Famous, famous quote. 
I shall even believe that the millennium is at hand and that the reign of justice is about to commence when the patent office or government begins to distribute and the people to plant the seeds of these things. A very, very beautiful quote. But the problem was that, in fact, he was speaking into a creationist world. So the very same Horace Greeley, who thought the cutting of the mother tree was a despicable act, and so forth, uh, went started sparring with Thoreau in op editorials because they believed that plants spontaneously generated. They did not believe that forest succession came from seeds. And not only Horace Greeley, uh, but those assertions which seem absurd today uh, was taken up by creationists such as Louis Agassiz, uh, the famous Harvard zoologist. Uh, he was a preeminent scientist of the 19th century, and he went right at Thoreau as well. Uh, challenging the idea that, in fact, the succession of forests was by chipmunks and squirrels and birds and, you know, uh, random distribution uh, of seeds from trees, you know. Now, the, the, I bring this up uh, because, you know, the, you had the Asa Grays, you had the Darwins, you had Thoreau's, but you had this creationist streak right then. And that streak was theology trumps science. And that is still here today in our administration, in the Environmental Protection Agency. And there's literally people in the EPA who are running the EPA and deputy directors of the EPA who subscribe to this way of thinking that science goes so far, but theology trumps, right, science. Uh, So this debate did not stop with the origin of species. And of course, I don't know, you know, Darwin, Thoreau, who read who, when. It's very interesting because, you know, a year later, Darwin had basically uh, had said the same thing in Origin of Species about species themselves, not about forests, you know. Um, but in 1861, who was out here, but of course, a native of San Francisco, Carlton Watkins, right? And that's the mother of the forest, the drawing. And, and that's Audubon. Um, Beautiful stuff. And this is Carlton Watkins, a, a self-portrait of himself pretending to be a miner. I don't know. Maybe he had a thing about miners. I don't know. But here is this guy going around, and he fashioned, he had a cabinet maker in San Francisco make him this camera. It was glass plates. The plates were 18 by 22. Now, remember, these are wet colloidal plates. The negatives are wet. Right, with a solution. He's putting on, putting them in there, taking these cameras, cameras with one other person into the wilderness and taking these really spectacular photographs. And they were published in stereo back east. Uh, and so people could buy them and look at these little stereo opticons and look at this extraordinary place we call uh, Yosemite, uh, which is, of course, an Indian name. Um, and these really stunned people on the East Coast. And it was quickly followed uh, by Bierstadt. And this is the Columbia River by uh, Watkins. And so Albert Bierstadt from the Hudson River School uh, also came out around the same time and started to paint these incredibly romantic scenes of the Rockies of Yosemite. Uh, and anybody, these are terrible reproductions, but anybody who's been to the National Gallery and see them, they're magnificent, magnificent canvases. And once again, you know, the Discovery Channel, the National Geographic, people were looking at these things and it was, kind of, it was kind of an oh my God experience for a lot of Easterners. They had never imagined uh, scenes such as these. Uh, uh, and this is Watkins again, and this is uh, Bierstadt, of course. Uh, and Bierstadt, and Bierstadt. Right. Um, uh, and then in 1864, because of Watkins and uh, his photographs, 
uh, and Senator John Connors in California, uh, California was given, California was given Yosemite and it became a state park and later it became uh, a federal park. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because in this we see uh, the early seeds of what David Brower did with a superb series of books published uh, when he was at the head of the Sierra Club because those books also hugely influenced legislation in this country and also caused the creation of national parks and uh, reserves. You know, And I think had a no small influence in him successfully preventing the damming of Grand Canyon. And of course, just a year later, who is walking around there but John Muir, he publishes his first nature essay. And it's a tradition carried forth to this day by Richard Nelson and Annie Dillard, Barry Lopez and others. Uh, and after years of walking the Sierras with Robert uh, Underwood Johnson, uh, he forms the, the Sierra Club later. Uh, in 1866, the word ecology is coined by Ernest Haeckel, also known for his phrase, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right? Famous thing, even though, of course, that isn't true. But the meaning that the development of an organism expresses all the intermediate forms of its ancestors throughout evolution and even though it was proved wrong, the, the phrase stuck and so did ecology. Uh, in 1867, then Whitman publishes Leaves of Grass. So it's a very, very extraordinary period in the history of the environmental movement. And the, the connections between these writers and thinkers and essayists and so forth is much deeper than I can give to you in this time. Just like the, the, the network that exists right now in the environmental movement is, you know. Uh, uh, 1872, uh, and leaves the grass, you know, he said, wherever you are, at least arriving to uh, hither to commence, I feel through every leaf the pressure of your hand which I return, and thus upon our journey linked together, let us go. This is Whitman. So again, there's this amazing integration of self and nature, you know, um, which you saw first in uh, Emerson's uh, essay. Uh, 1872, the first national park, John Muir. Uh, in 1876, God's first temples. How should we preserve our forests? Um, the Standard Club is founded in 1892, and the same year uh, the Congress creates the Adirondacks Park. You know, um, and then it goes quickly, and I don't want to belabor it. Um, Roosevelt in 87, uh, the Boone and Crockett Club, very important thing. It's a wealthy big game hunters and conservation group. Uh, Roosevelt, who we uh, uh, honor uh, justifiably as one of our greatest environmental pro, uh, presidents, uh, was uh, quoted as saying, I feel most alive when I'm killing something. All right? uh, so I have to understand that there was this you know, establishment white kind of hunter thing. Well, let's save it so we have these animals to do what with? Well, kill. All right? um, in 1890, Gifford Pinchot returns to America after studying forestry in France, finds that the forestry practices here are shocking compared to the Europeans, uh, he establishes and coins the word wise use. Okay, that came from Pinchot. And, of course, and that term now is used by the right wing right, to justify um, property rights, and, although it really belongs to the conservation movement. Uh, his friend John Muir then is arguing you know, for... for vociferously for preserves and set-asides. You know. uh, for him, uh, nature's value was inherent for, for, for Muir. It was not an extractable event. For Pinchot, it was extractable. Uh, so you get another schism here that is still sort of reverberating through the environmental movement. Um, 
And just to give you uh, an idea of, of Roosevelt, uh, he appoints, of course, Pinchot the uh, uh, head of the Bureau of Forestry, so he's the, he starts the, uh, uh, that department of the USDA uh, in 1905. Uh, but Roosevelt establishes the Tongass, the Chugach Forest Reserves in Hawaii. Uh, he sets aside the Hawaiian Island Bird Reservation, uh, Mount Olympus in Washington State, uh, Lake Malheur in Oregon, the Culebra Islands in Puerto Rico, Mosquito Inlet in, in, uh, in Florida. And under the auspices of the Antiquities Act, he signed the Grand Canyon National Monument into being in 1908. And he did uh, 11 such monuments during his presidency. Uh, Montezuma's Castle, Gila Cliff Dwelling, Devil's Tower, which is, should be known as Bear's Lodge, that's by the Native Americans as a proper name, and of course, Your Woods in Marin County. Right? And then in 07, he's, 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 you know, Muir again is trying to stop the damming of the other half of Yosemite, which is Hetch Hetchy, uh, which falls into the hands of political power. In 1909, uh, a very radical pamphleteer called Isaac Branson. Uh, writes one uh, pamphlet here and distributes it on the street, just like the guy outside was giving people <laughs> handouts to come to lecture tonight. But it said, Yosemite against corporate greed. Shall half of Yosemite National Park be destroyed by San Francisco, uh, which was a passionate defense, uh, preserving Hetch Hetchy uh, and uh, the proposed and now extant O'Shaughnessy Dam. The work of dismantling this dam, which is Brower's legacy, is carried on brilliantly and, and just faithfully by uh, Ron Good and others uh, who are working tirelessly to get Yosemite back for us. Uh, and in 1914, the last passenger pigeon died and William Hornaday Smith published Our Vanishing Wildlife is Extermination Preservation. So here, the idea of extirpation, extinction, the permanent loss you know, is really introduced uh, into uh, uh, common parlance, and of course, then it just gets rich. In 34, Lester Brown, Jane Goodall, Wendell Berry are all born. Interesting year that was. Uh, 49, Sand County Almanac, and so forth. Then it just proliferates. There's William O. Douglas, Wallace Stegner, Rachel Carson, Ed Abbey, Garrett Hardin, Gaylord Nelson, Dana Meadows, Jacques Cousteau, Eugene Odoms of Fundamentals of Ecology, best book still, Paul Ehrlich, Ed Abbey, Rene Dubois. Uh, Dana Meadows, Schumacher, I said there already. Uh, Jim Lovelock, of course, and the guy hypothesis. Stewart, I'm afraid, has to be in there. And, of course, our favorite and beloved David Brower, you know. Um, and now, so what's wrong with this chronology? It's foreshortened, of course. Many names are missing. Uh, well, these are honored and very honorable people, there's no question. But notice there isn't one Native American listed in that group. And where is Winona LaDuke? Where is Tom Goldtooth? Where is Lance Hughes? You know, whereas Grace Thorpe, I mean, and, 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 and hundreds and thousands and thousands of, of first inhabitants, you know, here. Um, and, of course, it, it presumes the environmental movement started in the United States, but that's not true. There's an environmental history in Japan. There's one in all over in different countries in Europe. Uh, there's one in China. There's one in India. So we have to be very careful here that we don't see through our you know, immediacy of our knowledge and project that out and say somehow we started this. Uh, it was uh, simultaneous all over the world and arose in different ways. But going back to the Native Americans, just let me make a point here um, because going back to Roosevelt and this idea that somehow the environmental movement, largely the most powerful part of it, really did arise from the upper class. There's no question about it. And uh, But a class that, like... Uh, uh, 
Perkins Marsh and so forth, really, um, uh, really made a separation between society and human beings and, and nature itself. Uh, but Native Americans, and if you look at sort of the native languages uh, from uh, all the Americas, you know, North, West America and South America, I mean, what you find is a very, very different set of, uh, of perceptions that inform their relationship to the environment. And I was reminded of this when I was in uh, Patagonia several years ago and was climbing with some friends and there was a very uh, tawdry uh, little uh, museum there of a extirpated uh, tribe called the Yaguan or the Yamana people. And these are the people that Magellan spotted when he came around Terra del Fuego and he called them beasts. He called them beasts because when he looked at them, they were bathing in the winter at the seashore. They'd taken off their furs. They were rubbing themselves down with salt water and steam was coming off their bodies. And he called them beasts. When the Czechs and Germans came uh, into uh, the, and created the great estancias in, in Chile and uh, Argentina uh, for wool, for the, you know, the Hobbesian dark satanic mills of the Industrial Revolution, you, uh, they were bounded at $25 a head. And they were really rounded up until they were finally in one mission, uh, Anglican mission. And this mission was headed by uh, a, a priest who was an amateur lexicographer. He loved words. So what happened was that... Um, uh, they wouldn't talk to him. Just the tribal chief started to tell him their language and give him the definition of the words. Uh, he wouldn't talk about women's issues, cosmology, ritual initiation, you know, certain things that were taboo because those weren't to be given just to anybody. But he would talk about everything else. He got to 30,000 words and the Anglican lexicographer died. All right. Now, that dictionary is in the British Museum. Just to give you some sense, is there's 40,000 words in Japanese. This is 30,000 words, one person, all memory, no written language. This language has more verbs than English. And this language, when you read a dictionary, is, and this is a, a, a term that Stuart coined, or at least I heard it from Stuart, is, in a sense, local science. This is a language, when you read it, where the sacred... Survival, hunting, gathering, which is what they did, uh, psychology, you know, uh, are not integrated. They were never disintegrated. And so the terms for, for spiritual states, the terms for psychological states, the terms for, are, are, are all poetically metaphorical of the, uh, of the science of place. So ika, uh, um, is, is a verb and it means lying in your canoe in the morning before uh, dawn listening to the rushes brush against the bark. What were you doing this morning? Oh, ika. Their word for depression is a crab who is molting its shell and it hasn't dropped it. It hasn't lost the old shell yet. Right? So the language is exquisite. Now if you take seven people here who are college educated and lock them up for a week, they'll come up with 12 to 15,000 words. This is the beast that Magellan saw. This was the people who were bounty. This is a language that we don't understand because what we're trying to do is bring this together. These are people that never separated. Right? So in a sense, the framing of environmentalism arose, I think, and these are my comments, from a great love of nature, but it also came from a sense of alienation and separation. 
and there's a parallel history here, which I could go into, and I don't have time tonight, of social justice, starting, again, because of the Industrial Age. But the old Martian schism persists, persists to this day. Herman Daly, the great ecological economist, worked, as you know, for a while for the World uh, Bank. At that time, Lawrence Summers was the head of the World Bank. He produced a document about the world, about the situation, I don't forget what it was. But in that, he showed a circle, which was nature, and inside he put the economy. He gave it to Lawrence Summers. Lawrence Summers uh, uh, reversed it, put the nature inside the economy and said, that's how you have to publish this. Right? So there you have exactly you know, the Martian-Emersonian split. Right? right at the highest levels of the World Bank. So, and again, these, the, the heuristics that informed it, you know, really the powerful part of the environmental movement were logging, mining, and sports, and hunting, and so forth. But today, the environmental movement, to me, is gone. It has morphed. Uh, a lot of different movements have come together. And I don't think there is an environmental movement as such, except as a subset of a larger unnamed movement. It has no name. And I think you have to bear in mind that it wasn't until, uh, was it Spengler in 1876 named the Industrial Age. There was no term for the Industrial Age. It had been going on for 175 years and people were able to do it quite well, thank you, without identifying it. So I don't think we can name this movement, but there is a movement. I'm just going to read some of the concerns of the, of the, of the things of this movement now, which include, of course, environmental issues, but many other. Acid deposition, ecotoxicology, immigration, radioactive waste, ecosystems, radioecology, agroforestry, electromagnetic fields, indigenous rights, uh, emissions controls, uh, rainwater harvesting, emissions trading, indoor air quality, recycling, industrial ecology, alternative medicine, endocrine disruptors, international conventions, remediation technology, animal rights, renewable energy, restoration ecology, uh, aquatic ecology, land trust, environmental education, uh, environmental ethics, social activism. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. I can just show, I have pages of these lists, right? And I'm not going to read them all, but it goes on and on, right? And this is this movement. And, the, and, and when you look at it, you say, yep, that's connected. Yep, that's part of it. Yep, you know, there's a part of you that kind of knows it is, you know. Uh, but um, so what's happened is that there is a new movement that has been growing and it is, in my opinion, uh, the largest movement in the world without, without question. Uh, you could say that this movement, in fact, is humanity's collective immune response to resist and heal political disease, economic infection, and ecological corruption caused by ideologies. Uh, they are, and at the Natural Capital Institute, which is three feet from Stewart, they are, at minimum, 130,000 groups in the world today. At minimum. There may, we may be off by a factor of two or a factor of four. There may be a quarter million, there may be a half a million. We are not sure yet. We are studying it right now. These are citizen-based organizations. They are village self-help groups. They are obviously NGOs, non-governmental organizations. They are volunteer organizations. They address social justice, environmental loss, and degradation. Uh, uh, on screen here, if this works, which I think it will, what you will see is a beginning of a random list of 130,000 organizations that comprise this movement. Um, 
But to give you a sense of, of how big this is, and I've started running it right now, and at this rate, you can pretty much keep up and track it and read it. If I went faster, you might have a problem. If I went slower, you could do better. Okay, if you sat here for four and a half days, you would not get to the end of this list. Okay, that's who we are. Right? And if you look at the names, these aren't familiar names. Maybe a couple are, right? And when, as we do this research, what we're seeing is unbelievable list groups. We are Bayerians, you know, we tend to know who's here. But even that's not true. I've been at meetings here and social justice meetings where people say, Gee, I didn't know about you, I didn't know about you. They're in Richmond and Oakland. They didn't know about each other. If we don't know about each other in Richmond and Oakland, imagine what we don't know about the rest of the world. This movement is in every single country of the world. There's no question. Uh, it is growing. Uh, uh, and um, I don't think anything will stop it from growing. Why isn't it more visible? Well, a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's new, in a sense, historically. Uh, armies we've had, governments, uh, war and religions have been here for millennia. Uh, but this is different. There is no history, there's no name, there's no precedent. Uh, there's scientific uh, experiments that repeatedly show uh, how large groups of people cannot see things that are plainly evident right in front of them uh, if they are unfamiliar objects. Even though they're there, if they're very unfamiliar, they just can't see them, especially if very familiar things are in front of them as well. Well, the very familiar things uh, in our society are television, CNN, and Fox, and, you know, uh, and, and ideologies, and all this sort of stuff. So this movement, in a sense, uh, is so non-ideological that it is, in a sense, unknown, unseeable. It can't be seen. And that's just a visual evocation of how big this list is. Okay. But because during the span of the 20th century, <laughs> we were going to put the Star Wars music to it, but I thought that would be anyway. uh, Big ideologies were worshipped. I mean, they dominated our beliefs of who we were, what was true, what was possible. Uh, and ideologies prey on our inner sensibilities, you know. And they, kind of, they stalk this earth, you know, clad in a kind of uh, existential armor. Capitalism, socialism, communism fought all during the 20th century for controls of our minds, and it wasn't pretty. Uh, and we were told, we were educated as children, that salvation would be found in a single system. But of course, as ecologists and biologists, that's just complete poppycock. You know, we know that stability and health can only be gained through diversity and not domination. The second reason it's not visible is because it's everywhere. There's no center, there's no spokesperson. Uh, uh, it's in every city on earth, it's in every country on earth. It comprises every tribe, race, culture, and ethnic group in the world. Third, it doesn't seek power. It seeks to dismantle power. It's very, very different. In fact, it doesn't mean it's politically inactive, as you well know. It means that its overriding agenda is to create a world where the type of political power that we see now is both unnecessary and illegal. Fourth, only parts of it are seen. And when they are seen, they are labeled by the media. They're labeled, these are environmentalists, they're anti-corporate, they're ragtag, they're marginal, they're anti-trade, they're poorly funded, they're ex-hippies, they're liberals, you know. It's all true, of course. Uh, but what's missing from these labels and what can't be tagged so 
easily is really the underlying values and vision that inform these groups. And, and this is the point I want to make, because if you look at these groups and many, many others, you say, okay, what informs this group? What are the values that inform uh, your work, your vision? Uh, and most of them have it. They have six points, five, seven, ten, and they can tell you right away, and they can write it. Some of them have it right on their website. If you had a big enough room and you could put them all on the walls and then you could just walk and read them all, they'd all vary and be different, but they don't contradict themselves. And this is what makes it a movement. This is why it's so different. This has never happened before in the history of the earth. No movement has arisen spontaneously without an ideology that is largely in agreement with itself, but doesn't depend on centrality to be effective. Right? So this is the long green. Fifth, um, it's going to win because it's going to win because it has better technologies. Uh, and this is the new face of the this movement. And um, these guys are. Um, let me check. Say about the billionaires. Um, I forget what it is. Uh, and I'm just going to go through this, you know, because you can see, like, what is this movement? Now, a lot of these tend to be more activists because of more interesting photographs, but, it's, uh, uh, but you'll see, right? This is a memorial to the farmer who killed himself at Cancun, the Korean farmer. These are Simonas who were kidnapped, remember, in uh, Baghdad um, and thought that they were going to be assassinated, but they weren't. Uh, but there was an NGO, it was Bridges to Baghdad. They were bringing food, and they've been doing it for nine years, this organization. You know? um, and it's a fair question, who kidnapped them? The UWA and their um, movement uh, against uh, Occidental Petroleum. There's Randy Hayes in the middle of the street, where he belongs. Because uh, he does a good job there. Uh, these are Nigerian women. This is Julia uh, in Ecuador. Um, so uh, this is uh, um, after Exxon. This is uh, um, the um, Narmada Dam in India. Andari right. Roy. So Majapakarv, Narmada. Josie Bove, the world's not for sale. Farmers Against Junk Food. Educated in Berkeley the head of the campesino movement in Nicaragua. I love this one. This is Cancun. <laughs> and this one too. <laughs> With their little Che button, you know. <laughs> and so forth. <laughs> um, it's really sweet. Um, and uh, I want to stop and, and go to questions right away, but, um, uh, but this movement, I, it, it, to me, it's so nascent on one hand and so huge on the other hand that we have to be careful, I have to be careful in generalizing or categorizing or naming it or saying it is this or it is not something else. I don't think we know yet. But what I do want to emphasize to you is that it's huge. It's bigger than the right, neocons, Al-Qaeda, NRA, you throw them all in the basket, this is bigger than that. It's bigger than the Catholic Church, maybe not in the people who go to church on Sunday, but in terms of institutions, organizations, places, vitality. This is a huge movement. And it's growing. 
you know. And I, in my opinion, it will not be stopped. The problem, of course, is that, uh, as you saw, there's, a, there's, a, there's an activist part and there's a constructivist part. And the, the activists resist, and the constructivists imagine, create, and try to create new possibilities, you know. And yet this movement, to me, is extraordinarily joyful. Uh, Kenny Osbell today told a story about, uh, which I had never heard, but in, in Egypt and, and long ago, you know, they had this sort of story that when you died, there was a scale, you know, and you put your heart on one side of the balance and a feather on the other. And if the heart outweighed the feather, then you, had to, you didn't go to heaven. <laughs> the, the idea was to be lighthearted and joyful. And I show you this because... Uh, it says on the top of their butts, it says, estamos ganando, you know, which, and it translates it on their cheeks, which is, we are winning, right? And uh, this was in, in Cancun. And to me, uh, you know, it just expresses the, the vitality and the, the you know, the, the cajones and the, and the joy of this movement that we are all a part of and that is growing and that we will uh, never actually maybe fully know in our lifetimes because, I, as I said, I think this is the dominant movement uh, of the 21st century. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Um, thank you for writing out <laughs> such a detailed speech. That's one you can't exactly give off uh, your armpit, can you? Um, in fact, the first question relates to that from Marion. I want to raise your hand if you're here. Let's bring the lights up a little bit in the room so we can see each other, too. Uh, she says, uh, do you uh, have plans to publish your speech in some form or post it on the website. We'd love to put it on the Long Now website if that's okay. Sure. It, I, I, I'd like to clean it up. I mean, if you, you saw my notes, you, <laughs> you don't want it on the website. But I will clean it up. Okay. Uh, uh, give me a little bit of time on that. We'll one. put it on I the site. Also, there will be audio and video versions of it there that you can download yeah. and uh, enjoy. Thank okay. You. First question uh, to content from Hillary Strobel. You hear? Right there in blue. Uh, what might be the outcome of an environmental movement that is informed by mechanistic governmental policy in the United States? What happens when groups with different ethical standards and agendas try to accomplish the same things? What's the last sentence again? What, what, groups are different what happens when groups with different ethical standards and agendas try to accomplish the same things? Well, they have a protracted conversation. Um, I mean, I think that's actually not only a question, but a description. I mean, of what is happening. Uh, one of the things that I think is evident is that, uh, going back to language, um, the, uh, when you talk to, which I do sometimes, corporations, um, even though we speak in English, uh, we might as well be Polish and Greek, you know, and because in, in, and there is a problem because they think they understand what you're saying and vice versa, you know. Uh, but there, there really isn't that uh, base, that the base of biology in the business world. And Peter Raven, uh, who um, is the head of Missouri Botanic Garden, and was at a meeting of executives, I forget which corporation. But, and he was in a black suit and white shirt. He kind of looked like, you know, preacher. 
and he was very stentorian and he really shook his fingers at them and he said, you know, he said, why do you let the Wall Street Journal choose your science, you know? <laughs> he said, we don't let Science Magazine choose our stocks, <laughs> you know? And, but he really pointed to the fact of this huge, huge uh, illiteracy that exists in, in government and in corporations, you know? And working with that is, a, is, is really difficult, you know? Um, and I was sitting next to the High Maki Maki of Alcoa in uh, Canberra in Australia, and I was saying that uh, corporations should not define sustainability. It should be defined by scientists and by NGOs, and you know. Uh, and he was just like, he said, "Who do you think you are? You know, of course business will define it. You know, it's our business. You know, and." And uh, so there is a sense, you know, that if they can own it. And what you're seeing also now is the corporatization of the whole term of sustainability. They are, in a sense, it's like a verbal enclosure movement, you know. So once they own it then, and define it, then they rank and judge and evaluate themselves according to their own standards. You know? yeah. Okay, related to that, a question from Stephen Hill, who's an old hand at these meetings. If this movement is so big, why isn't it more mainstream in our political system? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think it is mainstream in the sense that I think that I was at the Bioneers Conference today. There's 3,400 people there. There's 2,300 different groups, nonprofit groups, that are at that conference. Now, as you know, nobody's affiliated with one group, <laughs> right? So if you look at, you know, ACT and Move On and America, I mean, America Coming Together's ACT and, you know, you look what's going on in this election cycle, I mean, it is extraordinarily active politically. And so I don't think that the people are inactive. But the movement itself, uh, for example, there's over 2,000 groups in North America who have adopted a riparian corridor, a stream, a river, and what they do is they have celebrations and songs and parties and cleanups and fundraisers and they sell muffins and, you know, and they educate people about, you know, not putting stuff into it and basically are trying to restore uh, these corridors. You know. uh, they are politically active, but they're politically active, active in the place they are. and. Uh, what you're seeing is increasing activity, but I, what I want to emphasize is that the social justice movement and the environmental movement are becoming the same movement. And, and so we sometimes just see it as a, as a resource flow issue or a resource protection issue, and it's not. It's about uh, not just quality of life, uh, but people, uh, people of color, uh, people in the inner cities and so forth, uh, people who are deracinated in rural areas are making the connection between uh, poverty, uh, disease, uh, sickness, uh, uh, and uh, resource use, uh, corporatization, uh, and environmental issues. Uh, and that's a very, very powerful movement coming together. Well, a follow-up question to that, Paul. We just had four and a half hours of a national debate between two presidential candidates in which the subject of environment came up as a subject, never, as a word, maybe once. two and a half times or, right. or once. once. I think Kerry mentioned it once. Um, that's pretty far from mainstream. 
it seems to me. Is, mm-hmm. is there some structural reason it isn't part of that kind of debate? Yeah, because the, those, baits, those are ideological debates. So it's the whole thing. It's like they keep trying to establish, you know, two different ideologies. And not only do they do that, but the conservatives try to establish that this is a liberal, right? Whatever that means, you know. And in that, the whole attempt of that debate is a labeling. It's a labeling act, right? And so there is no substantive discussion of anything, much less the environment. I had not heard the substantive discussion of any subject whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard a single dialogue about anything important to the American people in four and a half hours of debate. So I don't think you can just take the environment and say, well, it's not mainstream. Apparently nothing is mainstream if you looked at those debates, right? Okay, Okay, here's one from Reed Burkhart. You here? There he is. Uh, Would you support environmental activism through business as a pragmatic method of Aikido activism to further empower activism toward the replacement of the profit objective by the fruition objective? I, I, say it, I think I got half of it. <laughs> the first part, it sounds like you, but there's some terminology here I haven't heard before. To further empower, in other words, engage the commercial sector with Aikido activism, to further empower activism toward the replacement of the profit objective by the fruition objective. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we can talk later. I, I will say this. Um, that the single biggest influence on corporate behavior is activism, period. No matter, and they will be the last to let you know that. The last. Um, I remember being at a meeting of uh, DuPont vice presidents, vice president of, I call them the P's, plastic, pesticides, pigments, <laughs> uh, petroleum, um, and uh, we were talking about endocrine disruptors. And they had asked, invited me to come in and talk about it and say, is this for real? Is this an issue? Should we pay attention? Should we not pay attention? And of course, I was saying, yeah, man, you know, pay attention. Uh, but, um, and, and they were saying, well, you know, like sugar was a big issue and salt a big issue. Now people don't, you know, Ben and Jerry's. And, you know, they were just kind of, you know. And a woman who was the vice president of one of the P's, I forget, um, turned to her colleagues. She didn't look at me, and she had tears in her eyes. And she said, and she just shook her finger at everybody and said, "Do you remember nine years ago? You know, CFCs, and we put our head in the sand and we stoned out, stonewalled that thing, and we couldn't go home to our kids. I never want to do that again and be ashamed of who I am and who I work for. You know." And so, um, why were the kids knowledgeable about it? Well, because of Greenpeace and activists and the movement, right? And so, uh, without question, and, and you know, the, 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 the spinmeisters will pretend that you know, it's just water off a duck's back. It is not water off a duck's back. And anything activists do, to, in a sense, make the people within the organization feel that they may have inadvertently uh, been employed by a pariah organization is really, really powerful. And the second most powerful influence on corporations that I have seen anecdotally, it's only anecdotally, is CEOs' daughters, not sons, daughters coming back from college and saying, Dad, what the heck are you doing? You know, you know, and I don't know what it is about losing the 
faith or the confidence of one's daughter for a CEO. And you know, only but two CEOs in the Fortune 500 are men, so I can talk about it. Uh, but that seems to be uh, has a, just a, a devastating effect, you know, uh, on them in terms of their corporate practices. Question from Brent Ross. You here? There he is in back. Um, in the Long Now seminar on depopulation, we learned about uh, new technology, how new technology is possibly separating humanity from the biological imperative of reproduction. And do you think technology could eventually unify humanity with nature? And if so, what types of technologies would these be? Mm -hmm. Well, the, there is a whole branch of technology that is um, described by the world biomimetics, biomimicry, uh, where it's nature as teacher, not uh, as mentor, really. And again, Janine Benyus wrote a very good book on it, but there's many other practitioners of it uh, in terms of materials, systems, uh, even social technologies. Um, and it's a fair question as to say, and there's, of course, a whole other branch of technology, you know, symbolized by, obviously, nanotechnology, genetic modification, biotechnology, or certain aspects of biotechnology, uh, and even more uh, exotic technologies. Uh, and it's a fair question as to whether both will proceed in parallel or one will become dominant and one will fall away. Um, and I, I think anybody who predicts the future of technology uh, is, in it, is, is risks great foolishness, you know, um, because you're always wrong. You know? um, but I, I will say that I think, practically speaking, um, you know, we're going into an age of extraordinary uh, uh, resource shortages uh, caused uh, not just by consumption and uh, rising standards of living and increasing population, uh, but by climate itself. So climate change is going to be the driver of a kind of a frugality. And the question will be then, which approach to frugality technologically is adaptable and useful in, in, in place and locality that can be uh, uh, taken up by people quickly and which ones uh, will be uh, n uh, not effective. You know? And I, I see that as the, the determinant of uh, where we will go or which sort of branch will be dominant in this century. I mean, I have my vote, but that doesn't mean, you know, I know, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, you know, Peter Schwartz, who has spoken here and who did the scenarios for uh, that, I uh, forget his name, but I mean, you know, the scenarios are for climate change in this century are the best case scenario is horrible and the worst case scenario is unthinkable. And so that's where we're going in terms of climate change, you know. And, and so those have an incredible effect uh, on our lives. I was at a... Um, uh, in New York at Town Hall, and I had an opportunity to speak uh, on stage with the Dalai Lama on the environment. It was kind of fun. Um, and, uh, and in my, my part of the talk, because there was a lot of the Tibetan community there, um, what I said was, and I cited the study that Peter had done, or the scenarios, and at that time it was still not released. It hadn't been leaked, but it had been leaked to Stuart and me and others. And, and, um, and just said that, in fact, the Pentagon really does have a scenario for uh, the Atlantic Gyre, the Atlantic, you know, 
the cessation of it when agriculture fails from France to Moscow. And, uh, and the scenario was every nation for itself and therefore it would be Fortress America, Fortress Canada, Fortress whatever. Um, and what I found interesting was that we were at town hall with the Dalai Lama and there was a lot of Tibetan community there because these were people who had been cruelly uh, deracinated and made homeless by the Chinese and they did not respond with hatred and vengeance uh, uh, and vindictiveness and still haven't. And in the 21st century, we will all become homeless. There is no question about that. What I mean by homeless is that we will not recognize the places we live in now even if we don't move. It won't be the same. And the question really is, who will we be? And we should be talking about that. It's a, not a makes it a joyful thing, but we should get rid of our you know, last vestigial Panglossian eyeglasses you know, and to put them off because climate change is here. And the rate and the rapidity with which it occurs, or uh, the, the you know the, the discontinuities that may occur in terms of you know rapid heating and then sudden cold, we have no idea. But we, what for sure we know is that this environment, this California, this bay, this valley, those mountains, everything that these uh, people we talked about historically venerated and so forth will change so radically in the next 20, 30, 40 years that we will not recognize ourselves as being home. And so now is the time to prepare for that in a social sense. You know, I hate to... When I said that, the Dalai Lama turned to me and said, oh, very gloomy, <laughs> you, know, you know. And I said, well, I, it's just science. It's just, you know, we should talk about it. If it's there, we should have a discussion. Maybe the scientists are wrong, you know. I'm just being the, the messenger here. And then what are the implications of the message, you know. And then I said, well, the good news, of course, is that, you know, all emotions are... You know, I said our most renewable resource in America were crises, and and uh, and uh, and the good news is that you know it's a very gloomy. I said the good thing about emotions is they're completely recyclable, and uh, and he said he looked at me, he turned to his translator, and said recyclable. You know, what is, what is and he said emotion Buddhism not recyclable. You know, and and the, and the guy next to him, he said oh joke oh joke. <laughs> he laughed. <laughs> Just a joke. Okay, here's a question with a couple angles, and uh, I'll do this question and then one more question after that. We'll call it an evening. This is from Linda Sharp. You here? Way over there, waving a pencil. Of the 130,000 and counting groups uh, that you've noted, are any of these in sync with Emerson's notion of replacing church with nature, evangelizing, quote, restoring our souls by promoting a connection to nature? And let me add to that something that Kevin Kelly has been sort of teasing us with for a couple of years, which is, uh, he's already giggling away down here. Uh, as a devout Christian, he detects uh, severely religious behavior going on in the environmental movement. And so uh, maybe it's anti-ideological, but what if it, uh, and it was anti a certain theology? Uh, is it sliding into another e theology? And is that or is that not a good thing? I, I think um, the sacred is always great. Um, that's different than religion. <laughs> so reverence is a really extraordinary thing and, uh, and a sense of sanctity about people, about place, uh, about a relationship you know, to place. Uh, 
that you can't get enough of that. uh, but I think we can distinguish between the institutionalized form of religion and the expression of spirit, expression of spirituality in relationship to nature. And I would make that distinction. In terms of the, the, the question itself, uh, yes. Uh, uh, but it's interesting because if you start to look at these groups, it's not as though um, there are people saying, well, let's start a group, you know. Uh, what it, what's happening is that these are all started by one or two or you know a small group first because something happened or is about to happen. So they actually arise because of a reason. Uh, they don't. They're not spontaneously generated like Louis Agassiz talked about the forest. Uh, they're seeds. Each one of them is a seed. And just like Thoreau said, faith in a seed. You know, uh, they are planting seeds in turn. Of, of thinking, of understanding, of knowledge, of education uh, in their communities, in their villages, in their countries, in their governments. Look at Wangari Maathai, who won the Nobel Peace Prize and so forth, you know, uh, assistant minister of the environment in Kenya, right? A woman who was beaten, you know, uh, just outside of where she is minister, you know, not nine years ago, you know, beaten unconscious, right? So, um, there is extraordinary things happening. If you and I'm diverting a little bit from the question, but but if you if you just look at the data uh, uh, and you're optimistic, then you, you're not looking at the data. However, <laughs> however, and this is why we're doing this work at, at, at NCI. If you look at the people and you start to hang out and you see what's happening in the world and you're not optimistic, then you don't have a heart. Because human beings are extraordinary. And what I believe, and, and this is not theological nor is it scientific, but in fact, that, of course, that we are nature and that we have the ability to heal. That we are, in a sense, this immune response to, as I said, political disease and economic infection. And we can't see ourselves. We can't see it that way. And all I'm trying to do is, for a moment, maybe just a few years, get back and map it and see it and hold a mirror up to this movement. And so for the first time, maybe it will see, in fact, you know, that itself and not feel, as we all do, most of us, in our work, in our NGOs, you know, underfunded, marginalized, oftentimes criticized, attacked, and seemingly not mainstream. And when we see ourselves together in all the countries of the world and see the connections, you know, it may in itself catalyze a perceptual change in those millions and millions and millions of people who are trying to restore this place we love. Last question comes in similar fashion from two, from Jaime Cassio, who's there, and from Arthur Young, who's over there. Jaime asks, so, colon, what does the world look like if this movement succeeds? And Arthur Young's version is, your talk ended with great hope. If Danella Meadows were able to follow you, do you think she'd portray a planet with genuine quality of life beyond 2050 or 2100? And what makes you believe that? Well, I don't think I said I believe anything. And if I did, forgive me. Um, what I said is, I was talking about is what I see. And I'm just sharing what I see. 
And in my work, I have been blessed by having the um, privilege of addressing and talking to people such as you all over the world and have been doing it for a long time. And as my grandfather said, you never learn anything uh, when your mouth is open. However, the fact is that, and speakers will attest to this, every time you speak to an audience, every single audience in the world is completely different than every other audience. There is no two audiences that are alike. They are so distinct and different. And what happens as you move around the world and in this country, and what happened to me was that I began to get a sense of like, that there was something happening that wasn't expressed or understood by anyone. When I first did the work on Ecology of Commerce and Stuart and Ryan uh, and I were neighbors and as I poured into the readings for about 25 million words, which I read in a year, and these are books and monographs and articles, and as they will tell you, I got increasingly depressed. I went down, 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 and finally I remember Ryan said, you know, we had had dinner once a week and I'd be going these rants, you know, about the end of the world, and, and Ryan once put her arm around me and said, you know, Paul, we know the name of a good therapist. You know? <laughs> And, um, but what happened was that as I went out and began to speak to groups all over the world, I began to see something, well, just in my reading, that my conclusion was, after reading all those books and articles and monographs, that no one understood the rate and breadth of environmental loss and degradation in the world. It was impossible. It was just not possible. And that was sort of sobering. But as I, as I said, as I traveled, I had the opposite realization, which is nobody understands the rate and breadth of humanity's response to this. Right? None of us do. It's impossible. You know? And that is what uh, gave me you know, so much hope. Hope is different than a belief that something will happen in 50 or 100 years hence. You know? If you ask me to draw a scenario, I mean, it's very easy. Things are going to get really bad. There'll be a lot of suffering, a lot of loss. I don't think we'll have the same population as we do now in 40, 50 years. You know, it won't be higher. You know, So it's not as though it's a bed of roses going ahead. It's really, really going to be difficult, in my opinion, given the facts that I know. But what gives me, as I say, great heart and hope you know, is you. You do. It's that simple. And I have had the opportunity to see more use in my last 12, 15 years than maybe some of you have. And that has been a, like an extraordinary, as I say, blessing in my life for which I am, will always be grateful. And uh, I thank each and, one, each and every one of you, and I know many of you here, for what you stand for, for what you do, uh, for what you uphold, um, for what you honor. Thank you very much.